and this podcast is hosted by Explore Life Science, uh, part of the SGI group, and we are dedicated to showcasing exceptional stories of careers and successful journeys and, and personal stories as well in and around the medtech world. Now, today marks episode five of our mini-series, Women Who Lead, and today I, well, to be honest with you, I really wanted to interview just females for this entire series, and I came across an exceptional man that I just could not uh, not share his story. So today we're joined by Michael O'Brien, who is the president um, of the New York chapter of Healthcare Business Women's Association. He's been in the pharmaceutical and biotech world for over 20 years as an executive leader, and he's also got his own uh, coaching business at the moment, uh, coaching executive leaders in and around this industry. So today he's going to talk to us a little bit about his experience of diversity, how he has felt um, when he experienced a very similar sort of situation of being the only man in the room. He's going to talk to us about privilege and he's also going to tell us a little bit about his expertise in helping businesses. So if you're a business at the moment and you've got some diversity initiatives where you want to get more men to join that diversity table, get interested and invested, he's gonna give us his top tips and real expert knowledge and models of what works in this industry. So Michael, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you to record this episode. Well, Leanne, thanks for having me. Such an important topic. I've been looking forward to this all day long, so I can't wait to get into it with you. Fantastic, that's really that's really good to hear. So well, let's just jump straight into it then. So Michael, in your opinion, why is it important to have more men talking and advocating for gender equality and other DNI topics? Well, we can't deliver on our promise. So when we look at the healthcare industry, I think one of the, the magical things we do, our why, if you will, our purpose, is that we give the gift of health to people who don't have their health. And we can't do it as well as we could do it if we're not all talking together, where we have all the voices, all the different backgrounds, all the different experiences in the same room. And that includes men. Now, this industry has been generally driven by men. The listeners can't see this, but I'm a white guy. So, specifically, white men. So, in 2020, we need everyone in that room because our patients are everyone outside of the room. So we we can't deliver as well on the gift of giving health if we don't have everyone involved in this conversation. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and, and something that's not shined a light on uh, enough, I think. Um, and, and this is obviously something that's happened to you as well. You found yourself in a situation that really changed your opinion on how, you know, females and, and other people on those outskirts do feel when they are the only person in the room. So what, what was it that sort of changed your opinion and, and perspective on this? Well, there are two big things. One, the birth of my daughters, which we'll talk about a little bit later as we go through our conversation. So that's a fundamental change in my life. When my first daughter was born, I just wanted to change the world for her. But a few years after that, I joined the HBA. And then a few years after that, I went to the first, my first HBA annual conference. So it was 2006 Chicago, about 800 people in attendance. I would say 95% of them women. 
I was the national sales director for my company. So I had a pretty big title. I went though, because I wanted to really step into my membership. I wanted to explore and discover other ways to create more opportunities for my female leaders. When I inherited the team, there was the classic distribution, 50-50, like male, female in terms of the reps. But as you walked your way up the corporate ladder into management, it became more male, more white male. And we were moving the needle. We were starting to have like 50-50 as far as first level leadership between genders. But I still, I was thirsty to learn more. So I went to Chicago, got off the plane, headed to the hotel, still like all excited. I was a little nervous, but mainly excited. And I got into the lobby. I worked my way up the escalator to get my credentials, the badge, to sign in before I checked in, all that jazz. And I got up to the second floor, I turned the corner and all I saw were women. And I looked around and I didn't see any men except for a couple of hotel staff. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? I, <laughs> I'm crashing someone's party. I really shouldn't be here. Like, what was I thinking? All the things that we play in our head. And this is like one of the unspoken things that we all have. We all have that little voice in our head that gets, you know, gets us going and makes us feel a little nervous about thing or second guessing or it's not the kindest little voice that we all have. And so I have one too, even as an executive, even as an executive coach. And that thing was so loud in that moment. It was like, Michael, you shouldn't have come. What are you doing here? Michael, everyone's looking at you because you're the only guy. And, and hey, Leanne, I knew what I was signing up for. I was going to the Healthcare Business Women's Association annual conference. So I knew the meeting was mainly attended by women. But then reality like slapped me in the face and I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't be here. So all I wanted to do was grab my badge and sort of sneak away to a corner of the hotel and pretend I had busy national sales director stuff. So in line, I was getting like all nervous. The heart was racing, the whole thing. So I got my badge and I went off and went to a corner of the hotel waiting for the general session to open up. I pretended I was on my phone, but to be honest, I was only playing Brick Breaker on my BlackBerry back when we had Blackberries. And then the general session was going to open up. So I purposely waited, Leanne, for the room to go dark so I could sneak into the back of the room and sit at a table that wasn't really all that occupied because I didn't want anyone to see me because I didn't think I really belonged. And when it came to the gen like the general session, I left before the lights came back up and for all the little small breakouts, I had signed up for a whole bunch, but I didn't attend any because I thought, oh my God, that's too much attention. Everyone will be like, who's the guy? Who invited the guy to this party? He's crashing our party. So I played the whole meeting rather small. And when I got on the plane back to Newark, I really thought about what, what a missed opportunity I had. Like I went because I wanted to create opportunities for my female leaders. I went because again, I wanted to change the world for my daughters. And I was beating myself up pretty fiercely. And then I realized, and we didn't have this turn back in 2006, I was like the only in the room. And I, I felt like everyone was looking at me. I played small, I didn't speak up, I didn't show up in the way that I could have. And as I continued to fly back to Newark, flying back into the land of the majority, white males, I started to think more deeply about all the people back at the office that were always the only in the room. 
they could not fly back to the land of the majority in corporate life. And for me, that was a big moment to help, you know, strengthen my sense of empathy. So I made more of a commitment after to make sure that every voice and every person was heard. And, and that was really a big accelerator in my whole advancement in the diversity, equity, and inclusion world. I knew I had a few other gears to tap into based on that experience. And, and I've been trying to tap into those gears ever since. It's, it's so interesting how you describe that feeling, that voice, the loudness of that voice. Um, I mean, recruitment's a male-dominated industry. I, I Before I worked in recruitment, I was in um, a DIY. So I actually used to work for B&Q and then I worked for a builder's merchant and I literally was the only woman. And it's so bizarre because these happen to us all the time and to, to hear that it happened to you and you had, to, had a first example of that is it's really enlightening to know that, you know, you've obviously experienced it. Um, and obviously we're going to hear a little bit more about what your what that's taught you and and what you're going to do with that information but it is how I felt before in the past so it's it's really interesting that you explain it in that way um so I'll tell you what take us a little bit back actually because obviously we know what has really driven you to this point so how did you end up at sort of HBA what sort of like drew you in before you got to to be the only man in the room yeah, great question. So in 2001, I went to my very first Wodi, the woman of the year, and I was so inspired. The speeches were moving and just the energy of the room, the ballroom was packed like sardines. There must have been like close to 2000 people back then. You couldn't move around, but I just, I really got inspired by the event. One of my leaders was being recognized as the mentor of the year. Uh, rec a recognition that they give to one male leader in the industry. So I went largely because he was being recognized because I didn't know much about the HBA back then. I was still, you know, in the early part of my career, but I went because Bill was being recognized. But I got moved by the whole experience and I made a commitment. I was like, I'm going to join this organization. Again, Going back to, I want to change the world for my girls. By that time, I had another daughter. So I'm a proud papa of two daughters. They're now 19 and 22. And I really just wanted to change the world for them. And then in 2001, I got involved in a horrific near-death cycling accident in that July. So I never actually joined until 2003. And then as I went forward, my interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion started to expand. What started as, I'm going to do it for my girls, I realized it was really smart for a business. And now I just realized, hey, it's, it's really just the smart thing to do for a great society. So I moved from sort of a family focus to a business focus to more of a societal focus. And when I left my corporate pharma life, I was the general manager, vice president of North America for sales and marketing for a Japanese uh, global company. I decided to give back to organizations I felt really had a mission I could get my arms around. And the HBA was one of them. So I started out in 2014 just volunteering. I wanted to put in some sweat equity. So mm -hmm. I was a member. I would attend programs. I would write my membership check, all that jazz. But I wanted to do more to help the causes I believed in. So I started as a volunteer and then 
2018, they asked me if I wanted to be the first male chapter president in their 42-year-old history. And at first, I was a little hesitant because I thought, well, maybe I'm taking a role away from a great female leader. But in terms of diversity and inclusion, they were trying to walk the talk. And so I decided to accept it. So we've been almost two years in the role right now. It's been a great journey, but I wanted to contribute in a meaningful way. And one of the ways I wanted to contribute was to bring more men into the dialogue uh, because not enough men are are actively engaged in the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation like I think they should be or need to be. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely something that I've noticed as well. And I think what your position in HBA, being um, a man heading up the New York chapter of, of a, a female organization, you are allowing other men to see that and, and emulate that and start to get interested and invested in those diversity conversations. So just having you there as that figurehead does start to sort of prick ears up, so to speak. Was that your sort of main goal? That was one of my main goals. I, I wanted to serve. Again, I, I totally believe in the mission. I I believe we need more female leadership all the way through organizations at the very top because let's be honest, at home, women serve the role as the chief medical officer. If one of the kids in the household gets sick or gets a boo-boo or what have you, they're usually going to mom, not dad. And so women serve as purchasers, more likely than not, of healthcare. So if we don't have women in the room and at the highest level, then we're, we're missing that voice. So I wanted, one, to further the mission of the HBA, but two, I did want to bring more men into the dialogue because sometimes us guys will only listen to other guys. I hate to, I wish it was different, but in some ways that's the reality is that sometimes white guys only listen to other white guys. And I wanted to help role model the behavior I wanted to see in other white men to say, hey, there's a way to get involved. You don't have to give up your man card, quote unquote, but you can be involved and be an inclusive, diverse leader the type of leader that we need today and going forward. So that was an, certainly another part of the equation, the reason why I accepted the offer. But yeah, at first I was a little nervous. I was, <laughs> I was wondering, and I think a lot of listeners can also appreciate this. I was going, I was wondering what people would say. And again, making it sort of about me, making it about the little voice in your head, that judgment, was I qualified enough? Was I the right person? All that jazz. And when I have those moments, this is my advice to anyone, is that you want to try to step into a bigger type of view, move away from the me focus and more to the we. And every time I've been able to do that and to serve the greater purpose of the HBA, it helps uh, calm the nerves a bit and get back into action that leads to more diversity inclusion type of inclusion that we need to deliver on the gift of health as we talked about earlier yeah definitely and I think it's um, it's quite interesting how you explain like some men will only listen to to other men and I think that is something that I've I've witnessed it I'm sure there's other people listening today that's witnessed these things and if that's the value that you can see that you're adding then that's that's obviously creating a societal change which is exactly what you wanted to do which is fantastic so 
Let's talk about the title of this episode because you stumped me with this one because it's a football reference, which I'm not massively into football. Um, so born in the red zone. And once you explained it to me, this was a phenomenal analogy that I'd never heard of before. So talk us through that a little bit more, please. Sure. So football in terms of American football, but we can also look at this in Europe, European football on the pitch. So, but I'll use the analogy with the American football field that's 100 yards in length, uh, zero to 50, 50 to zero. And so for white men, there's they were born in the red zone. So the red zone is the 20 yards right before you're about to score. So when you start your life there, when you have the ball within those 20 yards, the chances of scoring dramatically go up compared to say, 50 yards downfield behind you, right? It's just harder to score from that. You just have to move the ball, whether you're talking about soccer, as we call it here in the States, or football, (laughs) wherever you may be. It's just harder to score when you start from your own goal that you're defending and moving to the opponent's goal. But when you are born, in this case, or have the ball closer to the opponent's end zone, your likelihood of scoring goes up. And so for a lot of white men, what we fail to realize is that we won the birth lottery by no doing of our own. We were born into maybe the right parents and the right geography at the right time, the right, you know, color of our skin. Not that there's any right or wrong, but just basically we sort of won that birth lottery and we were born in the red zone. And this was a hard thing for me to really grab onto initially because growing up, I grew up in a very middle-class existence, like like legit middle-class. I know everyone loves to say we're all middle-class, but we didn't have much. We didn't really have a lot of material, you know, external merit badges. So I always looked at the other kids in my class, the rich kids, if you will, that had the fancy clothes and the fancy stuff. And I was, you know, buying clothes from the outlet mall and knockoffs and stuff like that. And I didn't really feel privileged growing up. Because I looked at everyone else that had so much. I thought those were the privileged people. And it wasn't until I got out of university into my first job in Washington, D.C., where I really did sort of expand my aperture of life. Growing up in my high school, there were 400 kids, um, only four kids of color. So it wasn't until my first job where, you know, we're talking about male, female, but diversity and inclusion runs the gamut that I, I was like, wow, there's a whole other world out there. And you would think like, well, you should know that. But given my childhood, I didn't really know much of that. And then I realized, wow, like in terms of that football field, I may have only been born on the 19 yard line. And certainly a whole bunch of kids were maybe born on the one or two yard line. And I thought those were pr- the privileged folks, but compared to a lot of other groups, a lot of other groups that have been marginalized in the past, like women, or women of color, or any other marginalized group, I had it pretty good. So I, I too, are born in the red zone. And I think with that understanding, that sense of privilege, then it comes, there comes a responsibility to try to level the playing field. So we can truly, I know a lot of people like to have it be merit-based. Well, it's hard to have a merit-based system when the playing field isn't level. And right now, the playing field isn't level enough. It's not level. And those with privilege, I think, have a responsibility to do the leveling of the playing field 
so we can compete on merit to give everyone a chance, an equal chance to score. Um, and so, yeah, so that's my analogy that for a lot of men, they're like, oh yeah, I get that, you know, cause they're big football fans. Um, so, you know, it's privilege, I think sometimes is relative. I never felt that way, but I certainly appreciate it much more now looking at through the lens of uh, football, which was a little bit easier for me to grasp. Right. And to be fair, looking at it through f- football, soccer, uh, depending on where you're from, um, I would never have thought of it that way. But I think your explanation of looking at people that have got more than you and thinking that that's what privilege is compared to actually seeing it on a who's actually got the most opportunity. And I think that's what it is. Born in the red zone is is literally about you've got more opportunity to actually score a goal and um, more opportunity to go to university, go to um, get a certain job, all those different things. It, it even really re- resonated with me when you told me the story. So it, it definitely gives that perspective of where you sit. And I think you can see all these videos now about people will stand on a line and people move forward depending on what privilege they've got. And it's only when we do things like this that we start to see where we stand on that on that barometer of privilege. And then the next point is, what do we do with it? And I think that's something that's going to be really great to hear your perspective on. Now that we've got this understanding of privilege, what do we do for other people that are marginalised where we can add that, that help, that support? I think there's a, a lot of great things we can do. But before I get into that, I would like I, I remember that video that you're referencing, Leanne. It's a powerful video, and I think one of the one of the myths out there is that some folks that have been marginalized in the past that maybe starting way down near their goal, they end up scoring, and so then we we point to them and say, "Look, they had it tough, and they still scored." can't everyone from that position score? And, and you know, I, I look at that as like, yeah, it's a good rah-rah story, but when the system is not fair, it's hard for everyone who starts there to have an equal shot at scoring. So there's, a, I think, a combination that when we look at diversity, equity, inclusion of personal responsibility, which we just love to talk about, but personal responsibility coupled with having the right systems in place to ensure equity and equality. I think we need a combination of that as we go forward. And that's one thing that I think many folks can do in their companies is to look at, you know, do we have a level playing field? Can we create it? Uh, First, starting with that awareness. But one thing I really want to stress to people is I think as we look at trying to bring more men into the inclusion conversation, we're targeting men incorrectly. So a lot of DNI efforts are more universal or enterprise-wise for the company, and we want to bring everyone to come in. And a lot of men, again, not right or wrong, but this is just stuff that they've shared with me, feel like they are scolded when they're for past practices that they don't feel safe really expressing a point of view and having a conversation. It doesn't feel like a conversation to them. And they feel like they're being blamed for the past issues, as opposed to taking this moment, working on awareness, going from awareness to acceptance, to action, and then adjustment. I call these the four A's. And w- when we set up DNI that way, a lot of men shut down. I know a lot of DNI professionals out there experience men shutting down. And some of it's based on 
how we're not having the right type of conversation, but we're also not targeting the right guy. I think we're trying to, in consultant speak, boil the ocean, if you will. But for me, I rather focus in on some of the men who are ready to participate. And they may not necessarily know what to say or do, and they don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, but they're eager. And one one little study that came out back in 2018 showed that men who have their first child is a girl, they have daughters as their first child, are more likely than other factors to be more eager to to participate in gender equality conversations and actions. So I would rather, much like we do marketing-wise with all of our companies, is that we get really specific on the type of patient that our drug is good for. We really narrow in on that, call it a niche. And I think we need to do that too with men and say, instead of trying to like bring all men together equally, is work with a few of the men, again, the percentages might be only 20% of the population who are eager, they just don't know what to say or do next and bring them along and they become ambassadors and they can also help you bring other men into the into the inclusion conversation as we go forward. So yeah. I would start there with our DNI efforts as far as how we're reaching out to specific men. And then from there, we can talk about a few other things. Yeah, that's a really, really good tip, actually. And I think, like yourself, you've got two daughters. Your firstborn was a, was a girl. That's obviously made you really want to change the world for your children and for your daughters to make sure that they are getting the same opportunities as everybody else. And that's the same for a lot of fathers out there. So that's a really good sort of tip and and a gateway into getting more more sort of men to that um, diversity conversation. The one thing I wanted to just go back a little bit on, you said sometimes people are scared to say the wrong thing. And this happens quite a lot in all conversations. I think we're at a society at the moment where people are so scared to say the wrong thing or to get the answer wrong, they don't participate at all. Um, Is that what you're seeing with a lot of people that want to talk about diversity but don't feel like they have the, the right to or feel like they might get it wrong and then get chastised for it? I think I think this is more common than we realize that. And, and, I, and I see both sides of it. And then there's, a, there's one side of the coin where I'm like, hey guys, grow up and participate, have some courage, right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of like, um, woe is you, poor, poor you. And I totally get that. Like, but I also understand the reality is that some men, we'll use men as this example, are, are struggling with like, I just don't, I don't want to, I don't want to goof up. Now, again, some of it is a little bit of that body armor where it's an excuse for not to participate. But I also do think there's some legitimacy to their worry of, I want to participate, but I I don't know because I haven't haven't grown up this way. You know, I think one of the things that really men struggle with is they don't have a lot of other white men who are really, when you look at our greater society, who are out there in front being a champion of diversity, equity, inclusion. As we think about it, like how many people can think of white men who are really out in front? Now there's some company CEOs in our industry that do a good job. You know, they understand, I think, for a societal reasoning that this is a good thing. For a business, they understand it's good for business. But when we look at 
influencers or celebrities or whomever, national figures, we don't have a lot of men who are showing other men the pathway. Now, when it, when we look at women, you know, stepping into more leadership positions and, and moving from like how it used to be, say, in the 50s or like maybe early 60s, as far as like a traditional view of like man goes off to work, woman stays home to be the housewife. Many women had role models to say, no, no, there's more to life than that. Like I'm going to follow in her footsteps. Yeah. Um, there are, are great leaders of color that, you know, like our uh, former president, Barack Obama, who had led the way. So a lot of men of color can step into that. But there's not a lot of role models for white men to step into this conversation. I think we need more white men to be out in front and being accelerating and amplifying this message as a need because it's important for our daughters. It's important for business. It's also important for society. But I do think many men are scared to say or do the wrong thing as they're learning. Cause we know when we're learning, it gets a little wonky, it gets a little choppy and they're shutting down before they even begin to have the conversation. Yeah, I, I, um, I've definitely seen this happen. Um, I've seen this happen in all different areas, but I think it's a really important thing for white men to get someone to emulate and lead the way because there's probably, you know, similar to yourself, people that are on the cusp of this journey wanting to do more and haven't a clue how to do it. And and this would really open doors if more people were to sort of step up and say, I, you know, I want to be part of this discussion. So that's, um, yeah, it's definitely an important societal change. So obviously you're talking about some of your other sort of business models that can help businesses. What are the things other than, you know, talking to men in the business that have had a firstborn daughter, what other things are really great at getting um, men into this conversation? Well, this it might be um, contrary to, you know, public opinion in the diversity inclusion effort, but we, we spent a lot of time, I think, elevating men into hero status with capes and all that jazz. And we use particular nouns to describe them. Um, he's a advocate, he's a sponsor, he's a mentor, like all these big things. I rather see us move away from the labels that set guys up as sort of like hero mentality and focus in on the verb, focus in on the action. I'd rather, so I would rather have a, a male be uh, an amplifier, you know, like to amplify a voice of a, of a female colleague. So we've all been in meetings before where a female colleague will say X, Y, or Z, a male colleague will then just say on the heels of that X, Y, and Z, uh, and then the guy gets credit for it. So instead of like, you know, doing that, amplify your female colleague's voice, like take that action, make it a verb. In terms of mentorship, a lot of men will mentor women up into the point of their career level, right? But very few mentors actually want to mentor other women per se, uh, women per se, and, and move them above their level, right? So I look at mentorship as an accelerator. So I want you to ex forget about calling yourself a mentor. I want you to act as an accelerator, like accelerate women's careers through mentorship. We also talk about, well, we need sponsors. This is the thing about sponsorship, which I, I don't 
disagree with. And Jamie, you know, who is part of this series talks about sponsorship because it's not a talent pool issue. It's a sponsorship issue. But when we label men as sponsors, right, what we're talking about is really providing access. So I would want men, I want men to provide access as opposed to getting fixated like, well, I'm a sponsor. So I think, you know, in the, in the world, words matter. And I think some of the words we use with this, moving away from like hero-based words with cape and all that goodness into more action words where we're, we're propelling things forward as far as this conversation or all leaders to make sure that we have the right conversation. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. The other is a communication flow that I like to call LAVA, which stands for listen, acknowledge, validate, and ask. So us guys, we could all be better listeners. Now, when we get to a certain level in our career, we've worked our way up the corporate ladder because we've had that right answer more often than not. So we believe sometimes we always have the right answer. That's one of our bias biases that we deal with. So we tend not to be great listeners because we're like, hey, we already have the answer. But when we can get back to really having a conversation, which is a with type of action, which starts with actively listening or intuitively listening to what's being said and what's not being said, acknowledge the other person's you know viewpoint or emotions that are coming out, validate those as being valid uh, for a lack of a better word, and then ask more questions. So instead of telling, ask more questions, be more curious, especially as we go through everything related to COVID, curiosity can really help us get through this so we can reach for better as opposed to reaching for what normally has occurred in the past. So I think those two things, moving from more nouns to verbs, letting go of the hero type of um, mindset, and then working on our communication flow. So we're having better conversations with each other that's the type of stuff that I think will really help us bring about the change that we really need to bring about. Fantastic. They're really easy things to remember as well. So you've got your three A's there and then you've got your lava. And they're things that people can start to push forward around any kind of business um, from, from today, just making sure that they're amplifying other people's voices, accelerating and giving access. I, I like those. They're, they're really interesting. And it's good that what you said as well, it's not about that sort of hero sort of situation of support of um sponsor of those kind of mentor kind of things it's more about the action side of it and the execution and just elevating uh what females are doing so that's really um really really good information so that's that's um definitely something that i'll be trying to implement in my yes. business as well because <laughs> we have to like lose the whole like the male as like coming in and saving the day for for the women in our lives. The women in our lives don't need like our saving. They're perfectly capable of thriving on their own. There's a quote from the woman named Sarah Gremke. It goes back to, I think, 1890. And the, I just love the quote because I think it sums up this conversation pretty well. It, it sort of goes like this, that I don't ask anything of my male brethren all I ask is that you kindly take your foot off my neck and allow me to like sort of thrive. And I think that that's what women are asking for is like, you don't need to like, you know, I don't need extra help. You just need to get out of my way and, and you know, 
tear down some of these obstacles. Like you're just making it more difficult for us. So just kindly don't do that and allow me to shine on my own merit. And that's what I, that's what I want for business. That's, uh, hey, that's what I want for our greater society. I think we build a better society when everyone has a shot of contributing um, in, in a way that can be meaningful for all of us. Yeah. And do you know what? It's really interesting, that quote that you just mentioned, because I was um, I was watching a speech by Reese Witherspoon, um, the actress, and she said that she kept watching movies and in all of movies, especially Disney movies, because you've got young children. She said that the female always turns to the guy and says, what do we do now? And she said, in what world at her mum's southern? And she was like, a, a woman never asked for a man's help. Like, they always know what to do. A woman always knows what to do in that crisis situation. And she built a company on that. And it's gone to gross billions of dollars. And you think these things really can happen. There's so much evidence to the contrary. And it's really just doing these and implementing these things that's going to, you know, really elevate this, this conversation. Um, so tell me what's happening with you now then. So you're coaching and you've all this great stuff that you've done and learn over the years. How are you applying it to your own sort of practices at the moment? Well, today I run my own coaching firm called Peloton Executive Coaching. And I like to say that I help leaders prevent bad moments that we all have from turning into a bad day. I call my cycling accident my last bad day. And I, I use that label as a label to say, hey, we all have had these moments where we decide today's the day you're going to write a new script. And I think this moment with COVID is a bad moment, maybe even our last bad day, where we can use this opportunity to write a new script, a new script on how we work together. I totally believe that when we change how we work together, we will change how we live together because we spend so much time working. Uh, actually, <laughs> we're spending way too many hours working nowadays than ever before. So what I do now is I help executive leaders, but also leaders in the middle, lead better, prevent those bad moments, build up their resilience, because we need agility going forward. We need transparency, of course, but we also need to be resilient because things are going to constantly shake, move, and turn. Mm -hmm. And when we do, and as we learn new things, when we have greater awareness, we will tumble, we will trip. And when we do, my hope is that we get back up with more wisdom, with more knowledge, so we can go in a slightly different direction to create the better tomorrow that I love to talk about. So I do a lot of work when it comes to that. Also trying to bring a little bit more thoughtfulness and mindfulness into corporate life. I don't come at it as a um, meditation expert, but one who used meditation and mindfulness to help um, make a mind-body connection that allowed me to recover in the way that I've recovered. The doctors are totally surprised I survived my accident. It's Tell a miracle. Accident, because you've mentioned it a few times and people listening probably haven't a clue what, what happened. So tell us about that first. Sure. Well, I was at a company offsite meeting out in New Mexico here in the States. It was a classic team building Monday through Friday. In between your arrival and departure, they were going to try to torture you with PowerPoint. And I brought my bike out <laughs> for some exercise. I thought I was the smartest one in the meeting. I wanted to get some fresh air, you know, soak in New Mexico, all that jazz. And on 
July 11th, that morning, I came around a bend and a Ford Explorer was coming at me 40, going 40 miles an hour and hit me head on. And I remember everything, Leanne, about that morning. I broke a whole bunch of everything. What made it a life and death situation was when my left femur shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery of my left leg. So in essence, I was bleeding out in the middle of the nowhere, New Mexico. And the first surgery took 12 12 hours. I spent a good hunk of time in the ICU and in the hospital. And the doctors told my wife, had he been 10 years older or not in shape, your husband would certainly die. The recovery I've made, they're like blown away by. And largely it was due to making a mind-body connection. We tend to forget that in corporate life, how important our mind-body connection is. Also, I wanted to make sure that we had had the right people around me. So I use this term called the Peloton, which is a group of cyclists in a bike race. But I view my Peloton as the people closest to me who I'm riding with in life. And I'm only here today because I had this wonderful Peloton of great energy and support and care and and sometimes a little challenge along the way because you, know, you, you need that in your life, people who will challenge you outside your comfort zone. And I, now I, part of my work I do now is I go out to companies and I speak about change and about how to become resilient because no one gave me a change memo that, hey, this was going to happen. It just happened, just like sort of COVID's happening. And a lot of the emotions that we felt early in the early days of COVID, I felt in the early days of my recovery. But what I share with people now is that there's a way through this and we can get through this moment And I feel like I've created a better tomorrow through my recovery after my accident. And I feel very confident we'll be able to create a better normal, a better tomorrow coming through all of COVID. And, you know, my feeling is I lived for a reason that day. One of the reasons why I lived was to help people become more resilient, step into a a greater level of leadership, show up in life with more energy and create more inclusive pelotons, if you will, that are diverse, because I think that's the best way to ride forward together to create the type of change we want to see in the world. I love that. I I think that is um, such a big thing. We've actually got somebody on this mini series talking about finding your tribe, and it's very similar to what you're saying. The people you surround yourself with are those people that's going to push you forward, motivate you, and give you the right mental attitude to get to that next stage in your life um and during your coaching now um do you have many females and males actually that that do struggle with you know how that inner voice and and how they make it to that next level because of you know limiting beliefs or what whatever it is well one of the interesting things about the work i do is that many people feel like i'm the only one that has the inner critic like all the big wigs at my company or big influencers they may see online, they're, they're not like me. They don't have this little voice. And what I share with them all is that everybody I run into, everybody that I coach has one form or another of that inner critic that holds us back. That nice. is probably our worst boss ever. We all <laughs> have it. And There is a way to dance with that differently. And part of the work I do is to help leaders, help anyone really, because I actually think we're all leaders, but help people dance with that inner critic voice differently. So it doesn't feel like the tail's wagging the dog, that we have control over that. We have control of how, how we show up, despite when we have some fear. 
that's when we have to tap into courage and some vulnerability, you know, sort of pulling from the great Brene Brown. So the work I do is like when, when we can help dance with that voice in our head better, I think we have such a greater opportunity to create more change. I think when, even when it comes to DNI and men and being, having more men be included, there is a little bit of an inner critic dialogue that many men go, you know, go through that they haven't shared yet. Why is in terms of why they don't show up as engaged as they could be for a lot of these type of workshops or sessions. Because they're like, I don't know, I don't know anything. I'm like, I, you know, they're maybe looking back at past behaviors. There's a whole bunch of different things that could be going on. But the common denominator is that we all have a voice in our head. The ones that are most successful among us have found a way to dance with it differently. And that's one of the things I try to do as a coach, help my clients out when it comes to that little critter in our head. No, that's uh, that's really interesting, and um, I think it's also worth noting. Everybody always thinks they they're the only person that has that sort of critical voice in their head, um, and and it's it's something that does hold you back. So it is something that needs to be examined a, a lot more. So it's good that you're helping people, and hopefully, Michael, the work that you're doing with HBA, you know, you're um, a male leader in a female organization, hopefully that's going to show other men that they can obviously get involved as well. So that's, um, that's definitely a push forward. So if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to find out a little bit more about what you do, or they want to read a little bit more about your personal journey, how do they get in touch? The best way is to go to my website, which is michaelobrienshift.com. One word, michaelobrienshift.com. There they can send me a note if they want to send me a note. They can also download a copy of the Better Life Workbook, a little thing I put together filled with a lot of good wisdom and tips to help create a better life and in that, a better career. So that's, I think, the best place to start. Uh, And then you can also find me on LinkedIn because everyone's on LinkedIn, right? (laughs) So so I, I think those two places are probably the best places to start. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear your story. And um, if anybody else is listening that wants to reach out to Michael, I will share a link to his LinkedIn below and his website. Um, but please reach out, comment, and we hope that you've got some really good information for this episode. And hopefully you've learned something as well. So bye from MedTech Talks, bye from Leanne. And thank you again, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.